0: You see a lot of traders which come out of big firms, which are definitely great traders, but they don't know how to do a cash flow statement on a company level, and they might not be able to, to estimate the real cost of running a business. But to get the revenues right, it's, it's pretty easy in the alternative investment strategy. You have your average management fee and your average performance fee. You need to make an estimate, okay, what is the performance you can realistically achieve, and then you come up with your, with your revenues. It's pretty easy. But what's pretty tough is a correct cost estimation, in my opinion. Picture this for a second. A small group
1: of research-savvy PhDs who have spent a large portion of their adult lives studying and developing complex financial models with the intention of being able to make accurate forecasts of where to buy and sell financial instruments decides to venture into the world of entrepreneurship. You would expect the model to outperform a simple rule-based strategy like a classical trend-following approach. As amazing as technology and sophisticated systems are, they don't always end up performing better than their simpler cousins. But perhaps they perform differently. And that may be just what you as an investor is looking for, if algorithmic trading seems overwhelming to you, today's guests not only practice it, he teaches it as well to aspiring students. So take a deep breath and listen to today's episode. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged. The place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world, so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager Niels Kastrup Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence, and courage you need to invest like or invest with one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories you never get to hear, set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world. Today you're listening to episode 81. If this is the first episode you've heard, you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. Before we find out who's on today's show, I want to mention that today's podcast episode is brought to you by the Eurex
0: Exchange, which of course is the home of the European yield curve. Hi, this is Oliver Steinke, CEO and founder of Evolutic, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks for doing that, Oliver. And by the way, if you want to read the full
1: transcript of today's episode, just visit the toptradersunplugged.com website and sign up by clicking I'm in, on the button in the right-hand top corner, it's really that simple. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Oliver, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Niels, for having me. You're very welcome. Now, our, our conversation today will be a bit different but in an exciting way, I'm sure, since today we're not only going to learn about your journey as an entrepreneur and your entry into the systematic trading world, but we're also going to make use of your experience as a teacher an educator when it comes to algorithmic trading in general. So I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun and we'll all learn a great deal. But before we jump in, I just want to ask you a simple question that I try to ask of all my guests in order to appreciate the many different answers there is to this question. And it's basically, how do you respond when a person whom you haven't met before asks you what you do? How do you explain that, Oliver? Oliver?
0: Usually I say I'm running a a quantitative uh, trading firm based in uh, Switzerland. And the trading idea is based on my doctoral research, which I did in financial mathematics. Um, Yeah, that's usually if, if you just want to put it in one line, that's what I would say. Sure,
1: absolutely. But anyways, we're going to stay with you for a little while longer. So... Tell me your story. How did you get to where you are today? And perhaps in order to put some extra color on, you know, tell me a little bit what you were like as a kid or a young man growing up.
0: Yeah, so I come back from an entrepreneurial background. My uh, my parents, my grandparents, they have all been entrepreneurs. So for me, it was pretty clear from the beginning that I would like to start my own uh, company at one point in time in the future. And so after school I did, uh, I studied finance. I used to work with Commerzbank and Morgan Stanley and uh, a hedge fund Mm -hmm. in Geneva, Stigma partners. And, um, yeah, I I studied a bit internationally. So I did my bachelor in Germany then my master's degree in Madrid and my doctoral degree in Manchester. So I like to travel a bit. And yeah, now I'm living close to um, uh, close to Zurich, where we run Evolutik uh, out of Freienbach. It's a small village, roughly half an hour south of Zurich. Sure. And, and where,
1: where did you actually grow up? That was obviously a very, very quick recap of, yeah, of your yeah. life. But where,
0: where did you in fact grow up? Uh, I grew up close to Cologne in Germany, like roughly half an hour north of Cologne, in mm-hmm. a small village um, close to Düsseldorf. Sure.
1: And what were your interests back then? I mean, what did you, what did you do when you were hanging out with your friends? Or
0: I think pretty much the normal stuff. Now I played uh, football, although without success. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, I was always uh, interested in mathematics. Okay, so I did a bit of mathematics next to school, and um, yeah, that's it. I would say nothing extraordinary.
1: Sure. Now there is a bit of a gap between mathematics and finance. I mean. Is there a time that you can think back of when you started to realize that, you know, maybe it's not just mathematics I'm interested in, but uh, applying it in, in in the financial world? Or maybe you didn't think about applying it in the financial world straight away, but the finance part, how did that sneak into your life?
0: Um, yeah, actually, I was interested in finance as well from, uh, from an early age. So one of the best friends of my parents, he's a, Um, portfolio manager so I always found it very interesting to listen to his conversations why he would buy a certain stock how he would see the markets in general so um, I had an interest in managing money quite early I would say Mm -hmm.
1: you know often when we're kids you know we have some kind of childhood dream some people want to be you know a fireman a policeman or whatever I don't know if you can Think back I, to that time but did you know back then what you wanted to be if not a football player?
0: Actually okay. people make fun of me because when I was in second grade I would I wrote Portfolio Manager in this uh, friend's book you have in Germany. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my friend is still making fun about me that I, I knew it quite early what I would like to do. Yeah, so sure. I, did, I never wanted to become a fireman because I'm <laughs> probably not good at it.
1: I have to say just the fact that you knew the word Portfolio Manager in the second grade, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed already, Oliver. <laughs> it's going to be good today. Now, um, just, just sort of rounding off your, your background and, and for people to get a chance <laughs> to know yeah. you a little bit. I mean... As a kid, were you sort of the curious type that needed to know answers to everything? Or, or how, how did that sort of the interest in these topics, you know, how did that play out, so to speak?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty curious, guys. So I remember that I was reading even under my um, bed, <laughs> under the duvet, um, when I wasn't allowed to read anymore officially. Okay. So, yeah, I, I would say I'm quite curious. Fantastic, great stuff. Anyway, fast forward—you're now
1: the yeah. the CEO, of course, of of a uh, boutique firm, if I can put it yeah. like this—and that plays a big part of your life. But what do you do when you're not working? What do you like spending your time doing?
0: Actually, I'm—I um, uh, really like cycling and um, skiing. Mm-hmm. And with a couple of friends, we will cycle from Geneva to Monaco in July. Okay. So right now I'm, uh, I'm just back from a, a little road trip on my bike because I have to get in a bit better shape sure. <laughs> until, until July.
1: Sure. Fantastic. Excellent. Now, you've worked a few places and, and feel yeah. free to go back and, yeah. and, and, and talk a little bit more about the various places. But I wanted to ask you, when you've been working and when you've been educating mm. yourself, which has been obviously a big mm. part of your life, where do you feel you've learned the most that have prepared you for the journey you've started with, with your own business?
0: Um, it's, it's a difficult question because I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, so I knew from the beginning how it is to to run a company. Mm-hmm. Um, May I ask what your parents did? Since what kind they, of business they, were they? they? They trade herbs. Oh, the, okay. The, a yeah, different, uh, different area. But um, yeah, it was quite, quite interesting. And then it was more like my curiosity for financial mathematics, which led me to okay, first you do the master, then you do the PhD afterwards. Um, and because I did my PhD next to work, mm-hmm. for me, it was very nice to to actually really apply the research. Um, uh, yeah, to, to live trading. Um, and also to 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 research a field which is very practical sure. so probably if it would be like a phd in theoretical physics um probably i wouldn't be able to do it sure sure
1: and any of the places mm. that you worked at you would say had a big influence uh, i mean you worked both at the at a hedge fund but you worked also mm. at a bank i mean it was a that's obviously big 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 contrast between yeah. those two places but
0: yeah, so at MSN, it was quite good because we worked in research and we were like 70 people. Half of them had PhDs. It was a very international firm. I spent some time in London, some time in Switzerland, and some time in Hong Kong. So okay. it was very internationally. Then at the hedge fund, I was basically the right hand of a, a guy who, who used to run the prop desk at the Salomon Brothers in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So from him, I could you know really improve my my trading skills. But it was a smaller place. It was like less than 20 people. So it's not as international as um, as Morgan Stanley, of course.
1: Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Anyways,
0: before we jump into the next topic, so
1: to speak, I want to ask you a much broader question. Now, algorithmic trading can be said to be a discipline at the intersection of finance, computer science and mathematics. And you happen not only to practice it, but also teach it. So let's for a moment imagine that I'm a student attending your class and take us into the classroom and teach us the general overview, perhaps in a condensed version of this unique trading style and hopefully in a sort of down to earth way so that the broad range of listeners that we have can appreciate what algorithmic trading is all about.
0: Yeah, I think um, in general, algorithmic trading uh, describes the process of using algorithms to generate and execute orders in financial markets. Um, we have three different areas or applications of algorithmic trading. The first one is algorithmic execution. So you can use algorithms to search some dark liquidity pools to optimize execution costs. Um, you have you know, all the things like iceberg orders, this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have market making, which is also another application of algorithmic trading, which is basically supplying the market with with ask quotes for financial securities. And um, then the last one is trade signal generation is what uh, we focus on at Evolutic. It's basically designing proprietary strategies to generate profits by betting on market directions. And hopefully you are more often right uh, than wrong. Sure. Absolutely. So
1: tell tell us about sort of that that branch of the algorithmic trading world that you focus on. Tell us a little bit about that from a sort of the the professorial uh, point of view. That when you teach this, how do you explain it to to your students?
0: Yeah. So we uh, we came up with a uh, what we call the algorithmic trading framework, um, which is basically consists of three different steps. The first one is signal generation, where you decide when and how to trade. The second step is trade implementation, where you size and execute your orders, including the exit orders. And then the last step is performance analysis, where you calculate different return risk and risk-return ratios to measure actually the success of your strategy. And um, I I introduced this um, uh, framework for my students already in the, uh, the first session, and then uh, usually we, we go step by step. We have a couple of sessions on just the signal generation, what are different um, uh, approaches people use in, in the financial world to um, to trigger trades. Mm-hmm. And we have the second step, which is a trade implementation. So you came up with your signal, okay, you, uh, you want to go long euro dollar. And how do you size your position what, uh, relative to your portfolio of million, um, what should be uh, your position size? How do you um, define the stop-loss distance? How do you define uh, your exit level? So you have a couple of very interesting uh, uh, questions here also. How do you take into account cross-correlation with other portfolio holdings and um, potential portfolio constraints because you might only be allowed to to invest X percent of the total portfolio in a certain industry or – sector or asset class and then the last step is performance analysis is after you have done your trades you have to come up with a smart way to judge um if the strategy is actually successful and what i see in finance is still that a lot of people are looking only at uh, returns first then volatility yeah it's it's coming a bit more on vogue nowadays um but people still use sharp ratio which honestly i cannot really understand because it punishes upside deviation, and I guess no one would be unhappy if suddenly you have a very good uh, day. That's why I I believe that the ratio is a much better judgment to um, yeah to decide if a trading strategy is actually good or not.
1: Sure, no, absolutely. Since we have time, that we have no constraints, yeah. I would love for yeah. you to take us deeper into those three main areas because yeah. I think. I think it's so important that uh, for people to understand uh, these things because it's part of the demystification, if I can put it that way, yeah. of, of what we do. I mean, the black box isn't black, uh, yeah. though many people believe it is. So, 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 please, uh, please continue and 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 take us into the the, the first uh, part of it, namely the the signal generation. How you, from a from a teacher's point of view. Uh, would go about explaining that?
0: Yeah, so um, we we have a couple of all, all the lectures I'm talking about uh, are available on our website uh, evolutic.com where you can download all these um, the slides and then it might be a bit easier to follow. But in the first step on about signal generation, I introduce a couple of mathematical tools and attributes of scientific trading models. So for example, mathematical tools have Markov models, co-integration. You have to look for stationarity versus non-stationarity. Is it a mean reverting process? If so, how do you check for that? How can you do bootstrapping, signal processing tools? How do you estimate return distributions properly? How can levy processes help help? Uh, In doing so, what are the the things you need to look out for when you do time series modeling? How can ensemble methods help you to improve the prediction accuracy of your model? So we look into all these different mathematical tools and we also um, create a framework where we make it clear what are the attributes of scientific trading models. For example, it has to be based on logical arguments. You have to be able to specify all the assumptions underlying your strategy. Uh, you have to be able to quantify these assumptions and um, the model properties can then be deduced from the assumptions uh, you have defined and you can also backtest um, your, your strategy based on these quantified uh, assumptions. So um, when, when you have this framework you can then goes through iterative strategy improvement by uh, just uh, changing the specifications of your uh, of your model slightly and just see what uh, works well and what what doesn't work well.
1: Now, that's obviously sort of the professor talking to a group of students who are uh, really trying to get into every nitty-gritty detail of these things. And, and you mentioned a, quite a lot of uh, technical terms, if I can put it that way. Uh, that for many people, and certainly for many in the investor on the the investor side of the table, may not be something that they were taught or familiar with. Yeah. How do you how do you deduce all of those technical terms into something that, um, if we if we now change the the audience to sort of the the uh, the investors, uh, perhaps how do you explain those things in 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 in, in perhaps a more simpler way? Uh, without losing, you know, um, any of the, the, the value of it, but how do we, because I think that's a big problem, not just for, yeah. for, for, I mean, for us as an industry, but for, for many people, we, we, we struggle with demystifying um, algorithmic trading. So do you have a, do you have a, um, a sense of how we could do that?
0: Um, no, we, we tried in our Evolutic presentation to really, uh, we are very, uh, one of our core values is transparency. Mm-hmm. So we are really very open about uh, our strategy, what happens uh, at what uh, step. So we um, we define, okay, what's the data input? Um, what comes after that? It's the analy- analysis and prediction phase where we and create levy process based market um, uh, predictions then how do we generate the trades so basically we apply this general framework from um, for from my teaching uh, world sure. to uh, yeah to a real life trading um, a trading strategy
1: sure now you talked about sort of the initial signal generation but there's then this strategy. I mean so signal generation and a lot of people I think are of the uh, impression at least that the, the buy and the sell signal in an algorithmic yeah. trading strategy or let's call it a systematic trading yeah. strategy is, is very, very important. Um, yeah. I think if you ask a lot of the practitioners, they would probably say, well, you know, the um, portfolio construction, uh, for example, and, and other things that goes into it is equally or maybe even more important. Um, is, is that part of the next steps you you take in your teaching or or where do you take it from there once you've done sort of the signal yeah. generation part?
0: Yeah, yeah, that would be step number two. Once we come up with the um, trade signal, so, I mean, basically all systematic strategies have some form of underlying model, which based on whatever, it can be a very simple moving average. It, it would say, okay, we go long or short underlying A. Mm-hmm. But then you have... The trade implementation uh, phase, where I agree with you, um, it's very difficult and, in my opinion, as important as the um, trade signal generation is the trade implementation. How much money do you actually bet um, on this trade signal? Where do you put your stop loss? Where do you um, exit the trade? Uh, what I find extremely challenging is the correct correlation estimation. Sure. So these kind of um, questions... Um, in my opinion, every every portfolio manager is asking it himself, and it just varies to, yes, yeah, a degree um, of sophistication how to um, how to deal with these problems uh, varies among pro- portfolio managers. Sure.
1: No, absolutely. And of course, the third step you mentioned, uh, if I caught that correctly, was yeah. obviously how do you how do you test your idea, or your hypothesis, yeah. um, and and what 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 do what do you teach your students to be aware of when it comes to uh, sort of testing their own uh, rules and ideas?
0: Yeah, so we uh, we put a lot of uh, emphasis in, in my teaching on um, yeah common mistakes people do when when they backtest strategies. A lot of them they don't take into account uh, transaction costs, bid ask perhaps, regime shift. So there there are so many. Um, um, small things which might not seem that important in the beginning, but which are very important in my, uh, uh, in my opinion that we have to really look at, um, at all of them. Also in, in a, uh, in a backtesting context, for example, some people, they, they backtest strategies with stop loss, uh, with stop losses, but they don't have intraday data. Right. So they can, they can only check based on the open, high, low, close, if they might have been, uh, executed the stop loss, um, or the take profit on that day, if you only have open high, low close, you don't know if the high has been achieved before the low sure. or the other way around. So yeah, it's, um, what we spent, um, the second, the second part of the course, we, we do a lot of yeah, research into the, into how, which back test errors should you really avoid yeah so it's a bit of a falsification approach it's not like it has to be like that it's more like okay don't do the big mistakes
1: and and in your i mean because this is uh i mean this is a topic for i think for many many people who want to get involved in in the systematic uh, trading world um you know obviously they have to do the work themselves first but the second challenge they face is that when they go out and talk to investors um, with only maybe a back test in their hand to get the initial funding um yeah. that is a tall order to say the least what's the biggest i mean just in your in your sort of point of view what what's the biggest challenge in order to convince someone that the validity of the back test you're presenting um actually uh, you know that it has real value uh, and that they don't have to wait three years to, to perhaps consider uh, making an investment.
0: Yeah, I think here it's very important to, to outline in detail what are all the underlying assumptions in your backtest and how have you uh, done this backtest, I mean, to, to come up with the results you're presenting to the investor.
1: Thanks Oliver, for, thanks for that sort of uh, overview. I think that uh, was very helpful and I certainly would encourage people to go and, and check out your your website and, and, and the full course. Uh, but anyway, let's go back to sort of the normal way that, uh, that I conduct these conversations. Yeah. And I want to, I mean, we're talking about today uh, for the purpose of our conversation of what you call the PredEx multi-asset class model. Um, yeah. Just tell me from a... 38,000 feet point of view, what it is you're trying to uh, deliver
0: to the investors, and then we'll get into more of the details. Yeah, so the objective of our predex model is a a pretty basic absolute return systematic directional multi-asset class strategy, um, where we have a target Satina ratio of 1.5, and a target return of um, 10% per year, which implies uh, annualized volatility of roughly 7%. Excellent.
1: Now, the first thing I want to talk to you a little bit about is um, your organization. Now, you are, you know, a, a relatively new firm. I know, yeah. and there's actually one thing that now that I think about it, maybe I, I do want to jump back a little bit and and ask a bit more to your background because yeah. this is not the first company you started, and uh, and I want to uh, before we go into the organization, I want to ask you a little bit about if you want to share, um, yeah. you know, what else you've done in the entrepreneurial world before getting to uh, to set up uh, Evoluti.
0: Yeah, so I've co-founded or invested in, um, I would say, almost 10 companies uh, in Germany, Aust- uh, Switzerland, and uh, the UK.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, totally un- unrelated industries. So, for example, one of them, they do backpacks, another company, they sell twollies, another company, uh, it's an online uh, basically, it it creates a beacon hub. So beacons are like Bluetooth um, uh, senders. So we believe that in the future, um, basically Google AdWords will come to real life. So if you go to a, a fashion store and you you stand for a long time in front of a certain jeans, let's say, mm-hmm. um when you have your Bluetooth on, uh, and you you open another app, probably yep. probably the ad will. We'll tell you hey this jeans is now on sale uh, 10% lower uh, you don't want to have it yep. so it's basically uh, cookies in real life another company um, we try to revolutionize the parking market um, basically it's an app where you don't have to deal anymore with all the um, hassles of going into a, 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 a big garage you know queue for the get get, get the ticket queue to pay go out so it would um streamline all this. So yeah, I have a couple of different um other business Im- investments and my experience in co-founding them and taking care of the fin- financial side just allows me to uh, to estimate how to run to how to run a business. Because you 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 will see a lot of traders which come out of big firms which are Definitely great traders, but they don't know how to do a cash flow statement on a company level and they might not be able to to estimate the real cost, cost of running a business, hiring people, getting an office, uh, travel cost, regulation cost. So there's a lot of costs involved in running a business and you need to manage a certain amount of money because to get the revenues wide, it's, it's pretty easy in the alternative investment strategy, you have your average management fee and your average performance fee. You need to make an estimate, okay, what is the uh, performance you can realistically achieve? And then you come up with zero with your revenues. It's pretty easy. But what's uh, pretty tough is a correct cost estimation, in my
1: opinion. Absolutely. I completely agree, Oliver. And I'm glad that we just touched on that because that is a big thing. I think it's very rare to meet someone who, uh, you know, have started or been part of starting several businesses. um, And then, uh, you know, you start your own uh, uh, CTA, if I can call it that. Now, maybe that's also why uh, when I looked at your uh, information, it, it looks to me that you've actually... Got a quite a sizable infrastructure for uh, the size of the firm or yeah. the AUM at this time, at yeah. least. Um, bring us up to date where you are in terms of AUM and talk about your organisation, how it all fits in, why they're important, you know, and 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 how it all. Came about. I mean, maybe you were all football friends back then, or maybe not. Uh, I yeah. see some commonality in terms of schools and, yeah. and other things. So so maybe you want to, uh, or you could bring us uh, a little bit uh, closer to that.
0: Yeah, so for us, it was, so I um, I started Evoluting in 2013 and um, together with Peter Miko, my partner, and we used to work before together for uh, roughly three years at um, Stigma Partners in Geneva. So he is the, um, the hardcore quant, and I'm the medium quant, I would say. <laughs> um, and so I think we have a we have a strong team because we only launched the multi asset class strategy in March, but we are already four PhD guys and one former McKinsey guy. So next to me it's um, Dr. Peter Miko. He um, he did his um, Ph.D. where he analyzed the use of artificial intelligence and in decision making and um, letter classification of high dimensional complex spaces. So something very fancy. I'm always joking. He can code faster than I uh, write an email to my family. <laughs> uh, so very, very smart guy. He takes care of um, uh, the research and the IT operations. Then we have also uh, Dr. Agnes Antal working with us. She is, um, she, like Peter, she did her uh, PhD at uh, APFL in Lausanne. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're both Hungarian, so they, they're old uh, old friends even. Okay. Um, next to uh, Agi, we also have uh, Dr. Francesco Comande. He is also a PhD from APFL, and um, basically he's... Um, uh, in contact with Peter and uh, Agi. For uh, he has been in contact with them for several uh, months before um, he started with us earlier this year. And then we have also uh, Ziad Mourad, who used to be my student in Madrid actually, mm-hmm. and so he was um, one of the best students in my class. And he was um, he used to work for McKinsey before, but he wanted to get more into this entrepreneurial, alternative, systematic trading world and so yeah i'm very glad to have uh, all all four of them on board because i think we have quite complementary uh, skill sets i would say Sure,
1: a lot of brain power that's for sure now in terms of the functions that you do in-house and 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 functions that you may outsource uh, how does that look from from sort of your point of view So
0: we don't do any outsourcing. So we we have, um, we trade via fix. Mm -hmm. So fix means that basically our server talks directly to the server from uh, the broker. So all the orders are implemented automatically. And then on our side, we we test them. And Francesco, um, he supports Peter on this trading infrastructure side. Then Agi, Peter and myself, we also focus on, on the improvement of the general strategy and um, <coughs> excuse me um, and then Z uh, and the myself we we also focus on on the sales side so meeting potential investors and these things but as we just started in in March with 5 million it was important uh, for me it was important to first create a a, a top class um, infrastructure and then to to, um, to raise the assets because I think in finance, you cannot, uh, you cannot blow up. So you have only one chance and you have to get it right. So it was important for me to rather finance a bit longer the process of getting the right infrastructure set up. Sure. Um, and only making money has to come later because first we want to build a very good infrastructure. I think we have achieved that. And now... It's about uh, building a track record, uh, getting to know potential investors. I think we have a a few USPs which differentiate us from other um, CTAs because Mm -hmm. um, I think most CTAs which are relatively small in terms of AUM like us, um, they have probably smaller teams. Mm -hmm. And what's also unique um, is that we focus on sortino, not Return. I -hmm. think uh, not a lot of CTAs have this explicit focus on Sotino. Then we use uh, ensembles of levy processes. I can I can. Well, we're going to get this. into that. We're going to get yeah. into that for sure, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah, so we explain that a bit later, but basically we are not the 50th CTA who does long-short equity based on S&P 500. Sure. And then we also have this entrepreneurial background. So also Peter, he was running his uh, own company already a couple of years back. So I think that also set, uh, sets us apart a bit that we have this entrepreneurial experience already. Sure. Now, I
1: want to just ask you just a couple of questions about this early phase, because I think uh, there are a lot of interested people uh, listening to us uh, today uh, who maybe are thinking about uh, starting their own uh, investment management firm or maybe another business. But certainly there are also, as we know, um, is it 80% or more, of the assets uh, you know managed today are really I should say actually you know maybe it's 90% of the assets managed today is only by a few uh, firms in our industry that means that a lot of smaller firms are really competing for uh, not so much of the assets so um, i would say that that thinking about you know the challenges of being small is is quite important so i wanted to ask you have you thought about or in your own mind how does the growth phase look like for a firm like yourself and 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 when yeah, when I do mean, you need when do you need to scale the business uh so to speak
0: I think now what we need to uh achieve is a good six to 12 months uh, track record, Mm -hmm. maybe even uh, longer. Of course, you have this early stage investors. So for example, we have one institutional investors. He basically invested based on the academic merits, which he sees in our approach. But most, um, most other investors, they they say, okay, it all sounds very fancy what you're uh, explaining, but, to be honest, I don't really fully understand the metrics behind it. So uh, sh- show me some results. Uh, what is the track record of uh, of this strategy? And so I, I believe that it will be at least another half a year to a year until we can really um, raise assets uh, significantly. Of course, over now we, we are we are starting the dialogue with investors uh, because it, especially with institutional investors, it can take half a year from first contact until they would actually invest. And they want to follow, they want to be on your monthly um, return uh, distribution list. So they want to see a bit, how do you behave in different market environments and so on, which is totally fair. I mean, I would do the same if I would be uh, (laughs) on their side. Um, Yeah. So I think the massive scaling will come probably end of the year, early uh, next year but um yeah we are ready now we um because of the automatization so far we only run managed accounts
1: mm-hmm.
0: for our service. it doesn't matter i think right now we have something like 12 or 13 different accounts we are managing
1: mm-hmm.
0: if you would have 100 it's not a lot of more effort for the for the computer sure so that's yep. the beauty of the scalability of such a business model
1: absolutely and just out of curiosity based on your initial research and and looking into the strategy as it stands now and and we'll talk about which markets you trade and all of that later on but 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 what do you think the strategy in terms of AUM what what what's the capacity as it stands right now
0: okay so we did some analysis and even if we would manage 750 million, we wouldn't. We would trade less than one percent of daily liquidity in any of the uh, analyzed markets. So, as we will mention uh, later, we only trade very liquid futures on the main asset classes. So, in terms of uh, equity in the E. C. S. it's like um, the German Dax, Hang Seng Index, Nikkei. So, really, this kind of yeah, very liquid. Uh, futures markets where um, there's quite a bit of capacity uh, for firms like us
1: sure and final question on the organization oliver i wanted just to uh, and i'm just curious about these things Mm so i mean have you had have you got a vision as to what kind of culture that your firm uh, is striving towards and and how do you keep How do you keep a good partnership between the people that, you know, have been sort of your your co-founders? Because these are not necessarily easy things in in the long run. It requires uh, work just like a marriage. And uh, so how have you thought about these things? Or are you just sort of, uh, you know, happy where you are now and not thinking too far ahead?
0: No, no. I think we have uh, what what made Peter and myself start this company is that we have very similar values. Mm-hmm. We really believe in an academic approach, excellence in research, focus on uh, producing unique investment strategies and um, innovation. So we believe that we, ha- in order to wanna. A successful long-term systematic asset manager, you need to stay on top of your game, and that is why we are both involved in the academic world, in order to really stay on the edge in terms of research, uh, in order to to stay innovative and come up with um, yeah attractive um, investment strategies. Because in finance, your product it's it's very transparent and comparable. If you if you are in fashion it's very difficult to compare short A with short B. In finance, it's very easy to compare the Sortino ratio of 100 different CTAs. Sure. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. Well, let's jump to the next uh, area, which is really, I want to talk a little bit about your track record, and it might seem a bit odd when it's only three months old, but uh, let's give it a go anyway. Um, First of all, uh, just, just out, really out of curiosity, right. um, March, April, May of 2015 um, has been somewhat different. Yeah. I mean, March, at least in the trend-following space, March was kind of yeah. the uh, continuation of a great start to the year. Many people made a lot of money. April comes along, a lot of the trends uh, changed at the same time, and, and uh, there was a Quite a bit of a give back by many managers. And May, as far as I can tell, and you and I are talking at the yeah. end of May, uh, before any numbers have really been released. Um, May seems to me, uh, I, my hunch is it's going to be a bit of a mixed bag. So just out of curiosity, how did you do in March, April and May?
0: Uh, unfortunately, we are down roughly one and a half percent. So since March. Um, but but this is in line with our expectations so it's in line with the backtest. Of course, we would have preferred to start, um, you know, positive right away. But it's it's really in line with what the backtest has shown. Sure. We're not for us. It's very difficult to to you know a lot of investors. They ask you, okay, are you a trend following guy or more mean reversion guy? And we are we don't really fit in one of these back uh, baskets. I would say we are a bit more trend following than mean reverting, but it's difficult for me to really say, okay, we are clear cut trend follower because yeah. we base our um, predictions based on uh, basically return distribution forecasts of levy processes, which can be um, on some underlying, sometimes there can be five da- days in a row long. So typical following, and on other days we can be long short long short you know we we uh, we change the direction um, quite often so um, it's difficult for me to to classify us in one strategy the performance so far is not um, not great but it's also not alarming for us because it's um, in line with what we have seen in our back test sure sure absolutely um, not at all it's just uh, it's a funny
1: period because they work Sort of three different in 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 environments, if I can uh, yeah. if I can characterize it like that. Um, did you uh, did you behave so to speak like uh, the industry? Meaning March was strong, April was weak, and May was mixed, or or or, or did you even?
0: Uh... No, no, we uh, we didn't have a April. We were down minimally. Okay. Uh, no sorry in March we were we just lost a little bit then we had uh, not so good April okay Uh, I think that's more in line and this month we had also a small loss okay Okay. so so far (laughs) not the best month well you
1: know it's a short period of time as you you correctly say now in terms of the environment now you already mentioned you're not really a trend follower you're you're not really something else um and and so sometimes when you look at a manager it's 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 about getting a feel. If you're an investor, at least it's about getting a feel for, in what environment can I expect the manager to deliver, you know, a certain uh, result. And my my my. Initial uh, understanding of what of what you're saying is that that's going to be difficult. So how how do you is there any way to describe a certain kind of environment where you know you're going to do well and another environment where you know you're going to do badly? Is is that possible
0: at all? No, we don't we don't have that very clear cut, and it's also because we trade so many different asset classes. So let's say you would have now we have currently we have the situation with a potential uh, Brexit, and because we, we, we trade vix we trade um euro dollar we trade rates it's like you might lose on the equities but you might win on on uh, on volatility for mm-hmm. example uh, and then might also win on rates or lose so it's very uh, for, for me I would be yeah yeah I don't think it would be serious if I would say yeah we we will always perform good in this kind of environment and bad in this kind of an environment.
1: Sure, absolutely. Now, you're coming into the CTA world at a time where uh, it's becoming perhaps a little bit easier for to have conversations about the strategy um, after a couple of years where uh, many investors didn't really want to consider CTAs, um, and of course, the period prior to 2014 uh, was probably one of the most difficult periods that CTA's uh, ever had now has this data if i can um describe it like that has this data helped you do you think knowing what happened in 11 12 13 in designing your models and maybe even 14 um has this been a been a help in designing your systems or is it not really that relevant uh, as such in the process that you're applying?
0: No, I mean, we didn't really look at other uh, strategies uh, that much before. Of course, now we have in our presentation, we calculate the correlation to the main CTA indices, how you can improve a potential uh, global equity portfolio by adding our strategy, this kind of stuff. But um, I, I think even the CTA... Uh, the CTA industry is a small subset of the alternative investment um, area, but it's still so diverse. It, for me, it's always very difficult to answer the question: What is what be the appropriate benchmark? And because we have such a unique academic approach, it's if we would do uh, as well, let's say, some strategy-based on Bollinger bands. Yeah, then we can compare us to other guys. Using Bollinger Bands, but we we use ensembles of Levy processes, which, uh, to my knowledge, aren't used by anyone else. So it's for us it's very difficult to come, you know, to compare or look at other CTAs what they're doing because we're doing something different. Well, let's
1: move on to that. Let's move to the heart of. Of our conversation, which is uh, the the program itself, and I I will confess as the first one that I'm not familiar with with uh, a lot of the uh, intellectual uh, methods that you're referring to here. So <laughs> for me, it will be um, certainly a learning uh, experience. But um, you know, obviously, quantitative investment strategies are I kind of driven or. Or there are sort of four key factors. You have your trade frequency, your success ratio, your return distributions, and your leverage ratio. Tell me how, maybe from that point of view, uh, your process of designing uh, your strategy. How does how does these four factors fit into to that? And and feel free then to go into the actual uh,
0: process itself. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah, so what, what we do is um, every quantitative uh, investment strategy is driven by four success factors. Trade frequency, success ratio, return distributions when you're right or wrong, and your leverage ratio. Um, however, this is more like a performance analysis tool. It's like when you when you have a given strategy, for example, trade frequency, um, all the high frequency guys, if you trade uh, much more often, it can be okay for you to just have a super mini edge, but you do like 1,000 trades a day, it, it might be sufficient. Then the success ratio, if you have a strategy which is, let's say, 80% wrong, but in the 20% of times um, where you are right, you make uh, 10 times more money than what you're losing when you're wrong, it can also be um, um, yeah, a very good strategy. That's why you have to... Uh, look at the combination of success ratio and the return distribution when you're right and wrong. And then the last one, um, using leverage, for me it's always, leverage It's a very misunderstood concept because it also depends a lot on the volatility of the underlying. So for example, um, if you compare a strategy on VIX or a strategy on Eurodollar, Dollar moves something like 0.5% a day roughly, mm-hmm. VIX moves something like 3.5% on average uh, each day. So, again, if you have a, let's say, a $1 million portfolio and you put 100% of your notional in VIX, that's a much, um, so with that strategy, you're not leveraged, but it can be much more dangerous, this uh, strategy uh, compared to a four times leveraged euro dollar uh, position on a 1 million portfolio. So, you're trading a notional of 4 million, but your expected daily move should be much smaller. What um, but what we do in our strategy is we use uh, so-called ensembles of um, Levy process models, and let me get uh, a bit more into details uh, what we are doing and why we are doing it. Sure. So first, why do we use Levy process models? What so, is a Levy
1: process model? Yeah.
0: So Levy process models uh, go back to a French mathematician called Paul Levy, mm-hmm. and they are just more flexible distributions than the normal distributions. So the financial theory we know, Black-Scholes, Markowitz, Sharp, this kind of um, theory was invented, most of them, in the around the 70s. And they they rely on three core assumptions. The first one is that financial uh, assets behave according to a normal distribution. However, empirical evidence shows that return distributions exhibit jumps They're skewed to the left. They have higher peaks and heavier tails than those of the normal distribution, and they display skewness and kurtosis. So we all know um, financial security returns have fat tails. Second assumption of classical financial theory, which is wrong, is that volatilities are not constant. So they vary over time, especially when you you know when when you look at um, the VIX, although it measures perception of volatility and not realized volatility, you see that volatility really moves over time. And then the third one is that returns and volatilities, they are correlated, usually negatively for equities and commodities. So for example, if markets really turn, uh, turn down massively, volatility usually shoots up. Sure. So in my PhD was um, in the analy- analysis of Um, levy process option pricing models where in the option pricing world people have been using these more flexible distributions and have been able to improve um, or overcome these three shortcomings what i've just mentioned Mm -hmm. so the base of our um, process are levy process models because they are they're better able to adjust for these three shortcomings and what are ensemble methods so ensemble methods are basically a fancy word for saying you combine a lot of models. Because what you can show mathematically, if you have, let's say, 10 models, all of them are better than 50%, so better than just um, a random uh, random coin toss. Yeah. And they have uncorrelated errors. Uh, you can improve overall prediction accuracy. So it's basically it's, not, it's the same mathematics like in Markovitz, the covariance term drops out, and therefore, the prediction accuracy uh, increases of the overall ensemble. So what do we combine? We combine a lot of different levy processes because there are a lot of different flexible distributions we can use. And we, um, we combine them with so-called ensemble methods. What, what are ensemble methods? How, how do they actually how do they work? So usually, uh, you can break them down into three stages. The first one is so-called ensemble generation, where you, um, you apply a certain um, algorithm or mathematical f- uh, statistical function to training data to extract the most promising set of models uh, to solve uh, a certain problem. In our context, you, you calibrate these distributions, these flexible distributions to historical return distributions.
1: Can we make an example? Can we just? Be, I just want to make sure that everyone is, yeah. is following this. I mean, and I could be completely wrong here, yeah. but is this the same as if a? And I think most people are at least somewhat familiar with trend following systems. Is this the same as picking a number of parameter sets, such as uh, different kinds of moving averages? You want to combine to find out which ones are performing best uh, based on certain criteria.
0: Uh, no, what we do, we have a, a, a different sets of models. So, um, over different time periods, over different uh, uh, different distributions. Let's say we we calibrate based on the last one hundred trading days, and then this more flexible distribution tells okay, based on the last hundred trading days, um, the most likely outcome if you have seen these patterns in the last hundred trading days is that tomorrow. Uh, underlying A goes up. But this we do it like 1 million times. So in that's the ensemble generation process, mm-hmm. then step number two of the ensemble process is so called ensemble pruning. So what you do is basically kick out the bad models. What And for us, the bad models are those which are very close to 50%, so very close to random. Because if you have a model, which is only 30% wide, for us, it's a very good model, because we just uh, trade the inverse, right? So a very weak model can be turned into a very good one. And then the next and last step of the ensemble process is so-called ensemble integration. So let's say you start with 100 models. After the pruning step, you're, you're down to 20. Then if you have these 20 models, each of them uh, will have a different prediction. So one will say up, the other one down, and so on. It's how do you combine them? Right. Simple version would be just build the average of all uh, predictions and that's your prediction. Um, you can get uh, a bit more fancy in that um, by, for example, taking into account the error or sortino ratio of, of the different models in the past and overweight, very strong models and underweight a little bit, not so strong models. So that's what, what we do. We do not just take a simple average. We, we have some form of weighting based on Sortino, as I tried to explain earlier. Sortino is uh, what we're really aiming for. We over and underweight those models which are left over after the ensemble pruning uh, step.
1: Sure. Okay. No, that's fine. And um, and and I'm glad you clarified that. So so again, I just want to make double sure that I also understand it. So essentially, how many different models? Do you have that you run these tests on before you start, you know, uh, pruning and 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 combining yeah. them? How many different and what kind of models are they because they must be a little bit different uh, in order yeah. to come up with different predictions?
0: Yeah, so we have roughly 10 different Levy process distributions. Um and uh, yeah, they they have small they have differences in the number of parameters you know. Uh, you need to use in order to uh, calibrate them. Then we have different what we call look-back periods. So we mm-hmm. go from uh, 10 day looking back only 10 days, so sure. only very recent observations, up to uh, more than 1,000 days. Right. And then we also have different um, return distribution smoothing applications. So Some of the uh, returns, we smooth them down before uh, feeding them into the um, levy process. That's why it goes quite exponentially. You start with 10 models, but then you have uh, 20 different time periods you apply it, and then you have different smoothing periods you apply it. That's why um, we end up with more than 1 million different uh, models.
1: Interesting. Now, you mentioned something, and again, I'm a little bit out of my depth uh, Mm -hmm. with these details, um, but... In one of my previous conversations that also uh, is regarding a trading strategy that uses artificial intelligence, it's uh, KFL out of um, uh, Canada, Um, one of the things that Dave Sanderson told me was that it was very important for them in their forecast to get to a number of 54%. In order to be profitable in the long run, they needed to be right... 54% Fifty-four percent of the time in their forecasts. Does this ring a bell in your research? Uh, and and is this something even that you um, have as part of the 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 goal of the, of your design?
0: Yeah, exactly. We, we we found that it's between fifty-three and fifty-four percent. Okay. Um, uh, for us, because of transaction costs and so on. Um, and, it, of course, it depends on your success ratio when you're right or wrong. There could be even a strategy, but for us, the distribution when we are right or wrong is pretty similar. So you could even have a strategy where you're only, as I mentioned earlier, 20% of the time right, but when you're right, you're right sure. big time, and when you're wrong, you're just losing a little bit. But we are more or less, we, we lose the same money than what we gain. Sure. So uh, we target uh, something around... prediction accuracy, and that's the beauty of the ensemble methods by combining a lot of weaker models with 51, 52% prediction accuracy, but by combining them and because they have uncorrelated errors, you can uh, improve overall prediction accuracy to somewhere around uh, that level you mentioned um, earlier, around 54, 55%.
1: Now your predictions how long do they last for uh, is that a 24 hour period or uh, yeah. okay
0: yeah so we always uh, for every underlying we um, we get daily trading signals we trade for every underlying we trade at a, a different uh, different point in time i mean some of them trade at the same time but sure. in general we predict uh, the the move over the next 24 hours and then let's say we are long Right now, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow there comes another uh, prediction for that underlying. If it stays long, we stay long. If it goes to neutral, we go out of the market. If it goes to short, uh, we turn the position.
1: Sure. And how many underlying markets do you uh, run this on uh, today?
0: We started with only five underlyings um, and we are extending it now to something like 20 underlyings okay. uh, of for our investment universe in yeah and the
1: process regardless of what underlying it is yeah. is, the, is the same uh, yeah. so to speak okay
0: yeah so we always have the same um, um, investment process so in step one we uh, have the ensemble uh, generation so we generate a lot of levy process based market models mm-hmm. and step two is always independent of the underlying as the ensemble pruning so basically taking <laughs> <to the> <laughs>
1: Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.